Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through three. And please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the living and active word of God. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. So, we're in 1 John. Uh, Real quick cover on the book of 1 John. This was written to show to Christians what the marks of a believer are and that they can have assurance that they really are Christians. Towards the end of the letter, John tells us, These things I've written to you. Why? In the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you can know, I have eternal life in God. John was fighting against deceitful people who pretended to be Christians. There were uh, people who used the same terminology that we use of Christ, God, heaven, hell. But they meant completely different things. They didn't actually mean what we mean when we say Jesus or God or heaven. These deceitful people were proto-Gnostics. We don't have time to get into Gnosticism. It was a second century heresy. The church father, Irenaeus, he wrote a whole book about it. It's called Against Heresies. It's really good. It might put you to sleep, but parts of it won't. But the point is that John was trying to help the people in his church know that they can have assurance that they are true believers He lays out the marks of what a true believer are, that they can actually know, I am a child of God. So, verse 1, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. When you read the whole epistle of John, you will notice that these verses are exclamatory. See, see it. I want you to behold it. I want you to feel it. In the Greek, we don't have exclamation points. You don't even have any punctuation at all. But here, even though the English doesn't have punctuations, it really should. He's wanting you, he's trying to get at you into your emotions. Do you see this love of God, how great it is? You know, why is it that when Scripture speaks so joyfully 
and wondrously. It's at these points that we're often actually really cold. We're like frozen, chosen people. Like, These, this is precisely why John has to tell us to think about God's love toward us. It's because we're cold. We need to be moved to love God. We're so distracted. We're sinful. We're, we're really upside down. We're not what we're supposed to be. You know, our minds are on anything but the love of God towards us. So here, John is warming up your heart. He's... He's buttering you up. He's pouring cinnamon on you. He's putting you in an oven. He's like a cinnamon roll. You know, that's what he's trying to do. Make you actually really be thankful. Really see who God is and his love towards you. And what is it? What, what is this love? That we should be called children of God. This is truly amazing. What John is describing here is adoption, the doctrine of adoption. You know, there are a lot of movies out there that talk about or show adoption. It's a story about some child. Oftentimes they're in an orphanage. They're in really terrible conditions. You know, we think of little orphan Annie. The sun will come out tomorrow. You know, she's just hoping. She's got a terrible situation. And oftentimes these, whatever the movie, it couldn't be, it could be anything about adoption. Usually the person who adopts them is like some rich millionaire, you know, who gives everything they want, you know, NBA player or whatever. And um, regardless, Hollywood understands what adoption is. It's this idea that someone who's totally undeserving, Totally, there's no reason that um, this person should be welcomed into another life to have new parents. That person comes and says, hey, you come home with me. You're mine now. All that I have, you can have. You know. What were you before God saved you? Our elder uh, Renton has been having the Friday night Bible study. It's on Ephesians. And a couple weeks ago, we were in Ephesians 2. What's it say there? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What were you before God saved you, before he adopts you? You're a child of wrath. What a terrible place to be. What a terrible thing to be. You know, who are children of wrath? Well, everyone outside of Christ. When our father Adam sinned, all his posterity, all his children fell with him. From him on, every child here now born is a child of wrath by nature. It's what they are. This is the doctrine of original sin. We inherit this. It's the inherited nature and sin of our father Adam. 
uh, Herman Bovink, he writes about this. Our organic unity and solidarity in Adam is more than physical, but begins with his representative role. We're not just sons of Adam in the flesh, like our body. He's our representative head. He sinned. When we say Christ's obedience is imputed to us as though we ourselves had accomplished it, he's talking now about the good thing about imputation, we do not mean that we personally and physically did it. Christ did it for us and in our place, so it is also with Adam. Virtually, potentially, and seminally, we may have been comprehended in him. Personally and actually, however, it was he who broke the probationary command, not we. Adam broke the law. He sinned. Yet, we are seen as sinners under that sin. We all sin because we're born sinners. But we actually, by nature, deserve the wrath of God. Why will God punish us outside of Christ. It's because of what we are. Everyone outside of God's covenant people, anyone who's not united to that new covenant head in Christ, the second Adam, remains a child of God. And what is a child of wrath? One who deserves the wrath of God. You and I at one point deserved the wrath of God. That's what, we were, that's what we should have received. God will punish sinners. If you're not in the ark of salvation, you will be consumed by the flood. And remember, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Twice in Isaiah we hear that. But now, you're children of God. Think about this. Do you see, are you starting to feel how wonderful this really is? God is the one who saved you. God is the one who predestined you. And to what? Back to Ephesians. For adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. For this is what John wants you to see, to think about, to glory in. How great God's love really is. God didn't owe us anything. We were orphans sitting in a slum. We weren't even good singers like little orphan Annie. And when God came to adopt us, what's worse is we actually spat in his face. We actually reject him. We're like, I don't want you. You're holy. Ugh. I don't want to be holy. And God has to say, nope mind. He used to change you, change your heart. If you haven't felt any unworthiness for God to adopt you, you have a lot to learn about yourself. There is zero warrant for God to come and say, come be my child. He didn't owe us anything. You have been adopted, not by a man, you know, not by a millionaire. Even, it's not even a rich man, not even the richest man on earth 
You've been adopted by God himself who owns everything that that rich man has. And to God, it doesn't even matter. You know, imagine being fatherless and one day, some, your hero, whoever your hero is, he comes to your house, okay, he comes to the orphanage, he's like, look, all that I have is, it's yours now. Steven Spielberg, he comes to your house. You get to make movies with me. Elon Musk, you get to go to space with me. You know, whoever it is, Peyton Manning, you can put, we're going to go practice football. I don't know. Whoever your hero is. Do, but do, do any of them really compare with God? The Father? The Almighty? The Creator of heaven and earth? I mean, really. Who do you want? A man or God? Do you want Spielberg or God? Who do you want as your father? Do you see your need for God as your father? I mean, where else do you have to go? Who else has eternal life? You know, uh, children. Question 100. Children's cat. We're going through the children's catechism. They're memorizing it, and it's amazing. A lot of them are doing really well. Some are really, I'm like, your mind is a sponge. I really wish I had that mind right now, and I'm not even old. Uh, what's question 100? What does the beginning of the Lord's Prayer teach us? Yeah, right on. Word for word. Good. Did you, if you didn't hear it, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, our Father, heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with complete holy reverence and a confidence as children to a Father who is able and ready to help us. You draw near to your father, your father in heaven. You know, father, that's a word that every one of us is very acquainted with. But unfortunately, many of us are actually only acquainted with the word. Many of us grow up fatherless. I did. I grew up in a single parent home with my mother. It's hard to know what a father is when you don't really have one around to show you what a father is. Perhaps you actually had a pretty good father. Perhaps your dad is, he's actually, he's doing everything right. He's, he loves God. He teaches you to love God. He provides for you. He spends time with you. He helps you with your homework. He tells you to do your homework. He actually disciplines you. He gives you ice cream. I love ice cream. I had ice cream last night with, a, with, with whipped cream and a cherry. It was, it was fun. Okay, well, anyway, perhaps your father does that, right? Well, you should love your father. You should love him. You're tempted not to. It's like, well, he irritates me sometimes. Why does he have to tell me what to do, you know? 
he's kind of weird. Like, everyone's weird. You're weird. But God, God is a father, though. You know, he's not like even the best of fathers we have because God doesn't fail. Fathers fail. I'm going, I'm a father now. The child's not coming out till December. But I'm going to fail. I know that. I hate to admit it, but I'm going to fail. But God, he doesn't fail. Never. Has God ever failed you? We become children of God by being born again. That's how you become a child of God. Have you been born again? You know, it's not enough to be born once. You've got to have a second birthday. Right? Even if you're born to Christian parents, guess what? You still have to be born again. And I say that as a pedo-baptist. Still got to be born again. Your baptism doesn't mean nothing without being born again. All right? Now, one very important note here, back to 1 John, right? One really important note. When we become children of God, we are brothers of Christ. Okay? He is our firstborn of many brethren. He's our firstborn, our elder brother. But we don't become God, right? We are not sons of God in the same way that Jesus is the Son of God. There's the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit. Jesus has always been the Son. The Father has always been the Father. The Spirit has always been the Spirit. There's never been a time when the Son wasn't the Son. When you become a child of God, a son of God, it's not as if you are now part of the Trinity, which would then be like a quadrinity, you know. You're not like, we're not adding people to the Trinity. This, when we become children of God, this is, um, I had it written down here. We, however, are created beings. That's not it. I had it written down. Well, anyway, we're finite, unimportant sinners, right? It's not as though now we are ontologically God. We don't become God. We're still created beings. That's the, that's the point, okay? And what's good about this, about being a son of God, is that this gives us assurance. Okay? Because what does John say? We are called children of God, and such we are. He adds it. And we really are. Be assured of it. You really are a child of God. Calvin says uh, that God declares us to be his sons with his own mouth. You are my son. He told Jesus, you are my son. Today I have begotten you, right? with whom I'm well pleased. And God didn't call Jesus his son with a scowl on his face. You're my son. He's, He's happy. You're my son. And that's how he feels about us. You're my children. With a smile on his face. With his own mouth. 
Remember what Paul says in Romans 8, and he also kind of says it in almost verbatim in Galatians 4. All who are led by the Spirit of God are what? Sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The children of God can know they are his children. The Spirit's been given to you. He witnesses with your spirit. The Spirit of God's a person, right? He actually has feelings. And he lives and he breathes and he moves. And he's given to every single child of God. No exception. If you're a child of God, you have the Spirit of God. You do. Have you felt and known his witness? Has he borne witness in your heart? Can you cry out to God as your father? Abba, Father, help me. That's what you have. And so John goes on. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. John gives us a distinguishing mark for those who are God's children. What's the mark? The world's not going to know you. The world will not know, they won't understand, they're not going to recognize that you're a child of God. What, what, are, you, what are you talking about? You're weird. That's what the world thinks. Those people who call themselves Christians are weird. They're awkward. You know, but this doesn't mean that automatically, you know, just because you're a Christian, you're now like a martyr immediately. And like, you have a halo on your head marked out, and everybody now is just totally against you. You know, it's not like you need to go around having this victimhood mentality. Everybody's out to get me. You're on a witch hunt against the world. You know, that's, I've been there. That was me. It's like, ugh. Don't be like that. What, how does the world not recognize you? Well, John says that however the world did not know Jesus, the same will be true for us. What? This reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. The world didn't know him. That's how he, the world doesn't know you. You know, you are to live as, as true children of God. You're not a child of the devil anymore. And so, John is, um, John is trying to, to show you, as a child of God, there's a life to come. You're not like the world because the world doesn't have hope. When all your eggs are in the basket of the world. This is all the world can offer you. And if your life sucks, guess what? You're gonna be really miserable because when you die, you just think it's over. 
Children of God have something to look forward to. We have a life that's coming. It gives us hope. It gives us joy when things don't go how we want them to. When people run into our cars. Danny got hit again by somebody else. He said two accidents. This is the only time he's ever been accidents, and it's because two other people are hitting him. But guess what? Danny, his life isn't wrapped up. It shouldn't be wrapped up in that car. There's more things to look forward to. God will provide. He protected him. Right? So, God, so John, he's going to go on. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet appeared what we will be. What's to come? Scripture often speaks of our salvation as a now and the not yet. The already and the not yet. Now you're a child of God, but it has not yet appeared what you're going to be. It's like, ah, this tension. Now this. But not yet. There's something more that's going to happen. Now we are adopted by God, but our adoption is actually not yet complete. Why? Romans 8.23. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We're actually waiting for the adoption that's to come. And the creation, too, actually waits with eager expectation for the revealing of the sons of God. That means like the trees outside, they're actually groaning to see the revealing of the sons of God. They want to see God's people glorified. Rocks. I mean, that's what he says, right? The creation is eagerly waiting, groaning waiting for the, the, the revealing of the sons of God. It'll give you something to think about next time you're outside, right? It's interesting. If you are God's child, you are experiencing salvation today. You're a child of God today. You're a son today. There are benefits you have that an unbeliever doesn't, such as you can cry out to your father, You have the power of the Spirit of God to live a holy life that you once uh, didn't have. You have a living power from God to be something you aren't, uh, that you weren't. You know, what you will be is not manifested yet. It is not shown or experienced yet exactly what we will be, but we know that it is coming. You know, this should give you good comfort. There are things we have not experienced yet. There's a life to come we hardly even know about. You know, think about all the hardships of this life, all the disappointments, all the frustrations, all the sin you have to keep fighting day in and day out, all the suffering you have to endure. When it is compared to what is to come, it's nothing. What does Paul say about this present life? For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory 
beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. You know, this life, you can't, you can't put all your basket, your egg, whatever that is. You can't put all your eggs in this basket. The basket is going to blow up. <laughs> oh. Do you think about heaven? I mean, do you really do you think about it? Do you meditate on it? Do you think about what eternal life is? You know, it's been said that the most heavenly-minded people are of no earthly good. You know, if you just sit there thinking about heaven all the time, well, what good are you now? But often, it's actually the most heavenly-minded people who actually do the most good. Most earthly good. Sam Storms, he points out when he talks about Jonathan Edwards' life, says, I can't think of anyone who was more productive during the course of his earthly life than Jonathan Edwards. One need only to glance at the 26 substantial volumes in the Yale University Press edition of his collected works. And that does not take into account the vast number of uh, unpublished sermons. You know, talk about a proliferate, a proliferate man. He was busy, productive. He was consumed with heaven, and he's not the only one. Um, I heard recently that the Puritan Richard Baxter would spend half an hour each day meditating on heaven. This turned into his massive book, The Saints' Everlasting Rest. I have a copy of it. And I'm like, it's like two and a half inches thick. It's, it's dense. The whole thing is just about heaven, about meditating about heaven. And Pastor Deanne pointed out to me, isn't it ridiculous that we as sinful people have to schedule time to think about heaven? You've got to carve it out and actually like, okay, I need to think about heaven now. It's like, come on, it should come naturally. Don't you want to think about heaven? Get your mind off of the drudgery of this world. You know, but there's some Christians who really do think that meditating on heaven is a waste of time. They think it's escapism. You're just trying to escape. You just want to flee the work that's before you in this world. Don't you know there are things to do here on earth? A world to take dominion over? A government to change? You need to be productive. You know, sounds kind of good, right? Well, yeah, there is work to do, and you shouldn't flee from it. But what happens when things don't go how we want? Sin is still here. Sinners are still here. Evil rulers are still here. The poor are still here. What did Jesus tell us? The poor you will always have with you. I mean, maybe we thought America could eradicate poverty. But guess what? We can't eradicate sin. There's always going to be poor people. Don't buy into the thought that because the kingdom is here now, that it's here in its fullness. It's real, it, you know, it's basically we're in the new heavens. The new earth is here now, today. It's not. It's ridiculous. 
There is a world to come. And heavenly-mindedness doesn't deter you. It doesn't make you unproductive. It's fuel. It gives you fuel. It's gasoline. It's NOS put in your system to make you keep going. That's what thinking about heaven does. Because you think, you know what? I'm okay. Yeah, the washing machine broke. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's kind of trivial. We still get really upset about that. My printer isn't working. Okay. I still get angry. Ah, you know, I still sin. Think about heaven. Think about all the children who didn't have a chance at life here, the miscarriages. I believe they'll be in heaven. You know, you need to get fuel to keep going. Look forward to that day. So what, how do you think about heaven? You know, where do you start? What are you supposed to think about when you think about heaven? Well, God's there, for one. That's great. Okay, We'll get back to that. But uh, oftentimes we speculate about heaven. Scripture doesn't really give a ton of stuff on it. Even when Paul went there, guess what? He couldn't tell you what was there. He was given a thorn in the flesh. It was so good. It's like, you know, that should give you some, something to think about. What in the world? It's so good that we can't talk about it right now. Well, there are good ways to think about heaven. For one, it's to think about what's not there. In Revelation, he says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Imagine a world without pain. Imagine a world without sin. Imagine a life where every conversation that you have goes exactly the way you want it to. How many times have you sat at a table for a meal and the conversation is just like, it's not going where I want it to go. I'm frustrated. They're not talking about the things I want to talk about. I'm not talking about the things they really want to talk about. I'm awkward. They're not really like me. I'm not really like them. You know, oftentimes our Thanksgivings are that way. Don't bring up Aunt Ruth's thing, you know, whatever. We're all tired. We're all sinners. We just, we don't, things are not how they're supposed to be right now. It's hard. Our conversation in heaven, though, is going to be just how it's supposed to be. Every interaction that we have with somebody, it's, it's totally beneficial to both people. It's mutually edifying. That means you really like talking to other people, right? You actually enjoy the people around you. There's nothing preventing you from having good conversation, from enjoying doing things with other souls, with other people, right? I mean, just think about that. We kind of have a little bit of a picture in Genesis. Um, 
after the, uh, before the flood, people lived really long, right? They lived 900 years, 800 years, 700 years. Well, if you count all that out, at a dinner table where you have Adam, he would have had, there would be nine generations sitting there because of how old they lived. So if I had a child at like 30 years old, and I lived to 900, and they had a child when they were 30, and they had a child, you know, you just count the generations. Well, so that means that you're sitting at dinner, and you can have a meal with your dad, with your granddad, with your great-granddad, with your great-great-granddad, with your great-great-great-granddad, with your great-great-great-great-granddad, with your great-great-great-great-great-granddad, and with your great-great-great-great-great-granddad. Nine. I did the math, don't worry. I mean, think about that. That's cool, right? Well, in heaven, you know, you might not sit with all of your, your ancestors directly. I'm sure maybe down the line there's a Christian here and there. Maybe there's a, a gener, you know, generation of generation. My dad was a Christian. He was, he was a Christian. We're all here. Either way, everybody who's supposed to be there is going to be there. Everyone who God wanted there, they're there. They're having a meal. Jonathan Edwards, Abraham, Joseph, Augustine, Peter, James, John, Esther, Ruth, Ruth, Corey Tin Boom, Athanasius, Irenaeus, Gregory the Great, Gregory, I don't know. Just keep going. All these people. And you know what's even more interesting, though? Think about all those people who are no-names. You know that pagan that got converted on Madagascar? Think about all those people. Nobody knows about in history. God cared about them, though. God knew them. And you'll get to know them, too. You get to spend time with them. We get to have a good old meal together. And people aren't going to be arguing about baptism anymore. Just shoot me. Or eschatology. That'll be nice. Guess what? That's over. We're in the new heavens. Ha! You were right, or I was wrong. You know. You know, think about think about all those people too. Who can't really talk right now. Think about Willie. Willie Edwards, you know, he has a soul. I'm sure there are a lot of things he wants to say. And he will. Very soon. Are you excited about heaven? Do you want to start meditating on heaven? Well, when shall we, when shall we get there? Hmm? When is this going to take place? Well, when Christ appears... At his second coming, the second advent, the time when the, you know, I can't even do it justice with words, you know. It's when Jesus comes back. What, is, what does Paul say about this? Your life is hid with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then ye shall appear also with him in glory. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Calvin says that uh, this, this time, 
God has delayed the manifestation of our glory because Christ is not manifested in the power of his kingdom. The power of God's kingdom isn't coming till Jesus comes back. The kingdom's not in its fullness till Jesus physically comes back with his thousand holy ones, with all of our, those people who die in the Lord, when they return with him, that's when the kingdom really comes. It'll be glorious. You see, it's only at the second coming that we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Real quick, if you and I die before that second coming, what happens? Well, this is what we call the intermediate state, okay? Paul told the Philippians he was torn between being here and being with the Lord. Like, I want to be here to labor, but I also want to be with the Lord right now. He wanted to die to be with him. The thief on the cross, when he was on the cross, Jesus, what did Jesus tell him? Today you will be with me in paradise. Today, not tomorrow, today. You're going to be with me in paradise. So we know that our soul goes to heaven when we die. Before Jesus comes back, our soul goes to be with the Lord. Our body doesn't, okay? The body doesn't go. It's here. It's in the ground. It's at the cemetery. That's why we bury people, because the body still needs to be resurrected, okay? So my mom, she died this year. Her soul is with the Lord in heaven. Her body is somewhere in South Carolina, in Bluffton. Has she been changed? Is she like Jesus now? You know, in the verse, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. No, she's not. She's not like him yet in that sense. If you die and you're with the Lord before he comes back, your soul is in heaven and it's a good place and you're at rest. You're ceasing from your labors. But you're still waiting when Jesus takes his thousand holy ones, you and everybody else, and you return to earth. And then your body is resurrected. And you're glorified. And you're changed in the twinkling of an eye. That is what will happen, okay? That's glorious. You should want to be with the Lord now. It kind of sounds weird to think, how can my, what's it like being in heaven when I'm just an embodied, uh, disembodied soul? Well, we don't know, but we know we're with the Lord. And we're still waiting for that great return, the great and awesome day. The resurrection happens. Okay, so what does this mean? What does it mean that we shall be like him? when we shall see him as he is, when the second coming happens, when we see Jesus as he is. This is a hard passage. Commentators don't really agree on the verse. Why are we like Jesus? You know, how do we become like Jesus? Is it because we can see him that we're made like him? The act of seeing him makes me like Jesus? Is the cause of, the tra- of our transformation because we see him? Or do we see him as he is, and that is because we're made like him? 
in that twinkling of an eye at the sound of the last trumpet. Calvin takes the latter position. That's what I would think too. He makes the point that even the wicked shall see Christ. When Christ returns, everyone's going to see him. But the wicked don't turn into, they're not made like Jesus. Something happens. It's that those who are God's people are changed. And that is why they see him and they will be made like him. But this passage is also difficult in another sense, right? It's hard to imagine that we will actually be like Jesus. You're actually going to be just like Jesus. Curtis Vaughn, he mentions in his his short little commentary, there's a story about a missionary. Some native converts were translating 1 John. When they came upon the statement, we shall be like him, the scribe laid down his pen and exclaimed, no, it is too much. Let us write, we shall kiss his feet. It was too good. It's too good to be true. It's so unimaginable that they thought it impossible. And they were going to change God's word. So let that be a warning to those who do Bible translation. Be faithful to the text. It is difficult to imagine that we should actually be glorified like Jesus. That we're going to be holy and pure and blameless. We're going to be like the one who is those things. It's amazing. Okay, so now what? John says that everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now you're a child of God. Right now, if you believed on Jesus, if you're born again, you are a child of God. And we've heard that there is yet a day when we're going to be changed forever. We're going to be glorified. So what are you to do? What are you to do now? How does that affect your life today? How does that affect the way you live? Well, you're to be holy. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. This is a description. The, The Christian life is one of holiness, of making an effort to be holy. Our home group started up, and we're doing the pursuit of holiness. One of the problem areas that was listed there was that we don't actually think we have to make an effort to be holy. You actually have to work at being holy. You should work to be holy. Well, how do I do that? How do I become more holy? Well, John tells us all throughout his epistle in the first chapter, walk in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Walk in the light. How do I do that? Spend time with God. Imitate him. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. We're to walk in that light. Don't walk in darkness. Don't imitate the world. You know, God is not in a room all by himself. Okay? 
and you're outside of it and the door's locked. You're just like, God's over there. I can't, I can't get into him. How do I know him? How am I going to walk in his light? But the door is open. You're, you're to have fellowship with him. You're to spend time with him. You're to get to know him, have conversation with him. Don't withhold fellowship with him and say, well, I'm not holy. I can't, I can't spend time with God. You, know, you, should be, you should have a holy boldness. Go before the throne of God. Be like him. He wants your heart. He doesn't want lip service. Have confidence that you can walk in his light. What else does John say? Well, you confess your sins. That's how you can be holy. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess your sins. The word confess, confession, just means same word. That's what the Greek means, same word. You, what, when you are confessing, you are just saying the words that God says about you. You're saying what he says about you. That's it. That's what confession is. And it's freeing. It's wonderful. When I can actually admit and say, yep, God, you're right. This, you're, what, you're talk, what you've told me about myself, it's true. I'm a sinner. I sin in this way. I did this. I confess it. And, and what? You're forgiven. It gives you power to move on. That's what it does. What else? Love your brother. That's how you can be holy. Do you love your brother? Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. No. Do you love your brother? Do you love all your brothers? Anyone who's a Christian, do you love them? Not just the ones you get to pick and choose? You know, heaven is a place where everyone who's there was chosen is there. You don't get to choose who gets to heaven. God does. So you can start now by loving those who God loves. There's, I read this somewhere. There was a, a pastor, he said, a friend of mine once told me years ago that the one thing that made her uneasy about heaven is that she won't get to choose who her table companions are at the Messianic banquet. Don't let that be you. Ugh. How cold and closed off is that? I mean, seriously, that really is us, though, right? We want to choose who, who gets to go. Love your brother. And guess what? Don't love the world. That's a good way to not be, I mean, to be holy, right? Don't love the world. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. I'm sure everybody knows this verse, probably. If, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For if all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. What does it mean to love the world? I mean, doesn't God love the world? He sent his only son because he loved the world. 
Well, he loved the world so that the world would stop being the world. He loved the world to save it from itself. That it would stop being sinful. We're to love all people, right? But we're not to love sin. That's the point. Don't love sin. Do you want to be in a place where there is no sin? And you should want to prepare yourself for it now. Start preparing yourself for that place where there is no sin. A lot of people, they say, oh yeah, I want to get to heaven. But they don't want to be holy. They're going to be severely disappointed when they get to heaven, if they get to heaven. Because what is heaven? It's the place where righteousness dwells. It's the home of righteousness. It's where holiness lives. You know? Sin doesn't live there. Sin's not on the same street. It's not in the same neighborhood. It's not in the same country even. It's not in the same world. Sin's gone. Do you want to be in a place where sin is gone? That, that's where. That's how we can be holy. It's to stop loving this world that's passing away. And finally, what, what else does John say? Keep yourselves from idols. My little children, guard yourselves from idols. This is the last verse he, he has. The last thing he tells them. The last thing we're told. Don't have idols. We want to love anything but God. We want anything else but to give our affections to our Lord. Don't do that. Don't love things that pass away, people who pass away. You should fear God. You should guard yourself from idols. C.S. Lewis in his essay or sermon, whatever it was, The Weight of Glory, he gives a really good picture. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Don't be pleased with this world, with the sin of the world. Don't have idols. They can't give you what they promise. God gives you exactly what he promises. Every word of it. And we'll close with what one of those promises is. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day you've given us.
Thank you for the word of God that we've had preached. Pray that you would bless it to the, those who've heard it. Help us to focus our hearts and minds on heaven. In your holy name we pray. Amen.